0: Amen. Let's turn in God's Word together to Luke chapter 2. It's printed there in the bulletin for you, but you may want to open your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2 as we read the first 21 verses. While you're turning there, let's just ask the question, what are we doing here? What are we reading these Advent passages for? What are, we, what are we doing all this for? Is this just habit? Is this sort of what we do when it gets cold? And as Chad says, when it starts going from 80 degrees to 40 degrees overnight, we start reading these things and we, we do the Christmas thing? Or is this the most true... And the most needed story that's ever been told. The story that makes sense of our stories. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. "...and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, "'Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news.'" Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us His Word. Heavenly Father, come now and be our teacher. Come now and open our eyes and soften our hearts. Open our ears to behold wonderful things in Your Word. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Rock and our Redeemer, Holy Spirit, speak to us now. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. Well, it's really easy, isn't it, at Christmas time for all of this to sort of become an autopilot, to sort of switch into Christmas mode, and 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 for. The nativity story to sort of get lumped in with Frosty and Rudolph and Elf and Alvin and the Chipmunks and and Mariah Carey and all of the the fun things that we're all doing and the overpriced wrapping paper. And for it to all get lumped in, and I think there's there's actually a danger for us in this passage. You know, Charles Spurgeon used to say that Scripture was like an uncaged lion. That opening Scripture was a danger for us. Because you are now at the mercy of the lion. I think when we come to this passage, friends, we are at the mercy of the truth of Scripture. And we may find that amongst all the sentimentality and amongst all the smarmy, fluffy, fun of Christmas, we open this passage and like Alice in Wonderland, we think we're following a fluffy white rabbit and having something that feels good and is sentimental that we can get away from, and all of a sudden we may find ourselves plunged into another world. Because that's what happens in this passage and in all of the birth narrative of Jesus is, is we're not just imitating Charlie Brown, And Linus reading this passage, no, we're actually being drawn in, invited into the kingdom of God. What's happening in this passage is we are being invited into the mystery of the incarnation. The most profound, true, needed, and powerful story that has ever been told. It's the story that we all want so desperately to be true, even if you this morning would not call yourself a Christian. Even if you're just here because it's what you do with the family this time of year. Even if you don't believe it. I think your heartbeat longs for it to be true, even if you don't think it is. That's what the Incarnation does. So we're going to talk briefly about the truth of the Incarnation and the joy of the incarnation the truth of the incarnation and the joy of the incarnation first off the truth of the incarnation if you've never heard that word i assume most of you have but if you've never heard that word incarnation means that god becomes man in carne if you've ever had carne asada at a mexican restaurant it means meat in other words god became flesh the word became flesh and dwelt among us that's what incarnation means And when we come to the Christmas story, we're invited to consider once again the fact, the truth of the Incarnation. And that's especially true in the Gospel of Luke. Luke, you may know, gives us more of the birth narrative and the early life of Jesus than any other Gospel. Luke was an educated man, something of the, the Sherlock Holmes of the Gospel writers. He's the investigator Uh, Church tradition tells us that he traveled with the Apostle... Well, Scripture tells us that he traveled with the Apostle Paul, but church tradition tells us that he was probably a surgeon or a medical doctor or a nurse of some kind. And you see that in his writing as he draws out uh, uh, physical body details like no other writer does. And Luke's purpose in writing his gospel is to underscore the facts, the historical narrative of Jesus' life, so that Christians can be built up in the truth of what they believe. The opening chapter, if you want to just flip back a page, Luke 1, the first four chapters, he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that have been delivered to us," He says he's relying on eyewitnesses and he's relying on previous accounts, probably the Gospel of Mark. He says, It seemed good to me, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, the person he's dedicating the book to, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In other words, this is not a fable. Now, I, I I know in a room like this, the majority of us don't think it's a fable. But I think there's a subtle, a, a subtle inertia to it getting lumped in with fables. This is history. It happened. Luke's an educated man. He's, he's writing to a Greek speaking audience. He's writing primarily to a non-Jewish audience. And that's why Luke includes details everywhere, because he wants you to have certainty about this. And so he writes, it. and unlike other writers, he really tries to anchor passages in historical uh, uh, detail. In those days, a decree went out. What are those days? What are the historical facts leading into verse 1 of chapter 2? Well, to to give you a really quick uh, Wikipedia version, and some of you know this, you remember this, if you're in high school, maybe you read Julius Caesar recently and Shakespeare, and and you know this more recently. But in the wake of the uh, enthronement and reign and assassination of Julius Caesar, the Roman Empire has been in upheaval and turmoil for several years until Caesar Augustus, who was also called Octavian who was the nephew and then adopted son of Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus has become emperor and has ushered in sort of an unprecedented era of peace in the Roman Empire. You might remember from history that, that after Julius Caesar was murdered, there was years and years of war and civil war and assassinations and Mark Antony and Cleopatra and, and all those cats. And now we're in what's called the Pax Romani, the Roman peace, when Caesar Augustus consolidates his empire. And one of the things that makes this such a peaceful era is that Caesar Augustus is a pretty good administrator. He's pretty good at making sure that he knows where everything is and makes sure that the trains run on time. And that's why the world has to be registered. Right? Also, though, this is a taxation, a taxation registration. It's a, it's a census to, to administrate the empire well, but also to underscore the glory of Augustus' empire. Which just underscores the fact for us, doesn't it, that worldly leaders, whether they want to or not, are fulfilling God's plan at all times. In the pride, in the violence, in the ambition of worldly politics and leadership, God's plan can never be thwarted. So Luke is concerned with these facts. And these are the historical facts that lead Mary and Joseph to have to be in Bethlehem. In other words, Luke is forcing us to deal with the historical nature of the incarnation. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He says, As a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever the Gospels are, they are not legends. He says, As a literary historian... I have read a great deal of legend and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived in that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of Platonic dialogue, there are no conversations that I know in ancient literature like the fourth gospel. There is nothing even in modern literature until about a hundred years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. I'll cut the quote short there, but Lewis hits the nail on the head that as a literary historian, the Gospels don't read like fables. They don't read like myths. So these are the facts of the Incarnation. The fact not only that Jesus took on flesh, but that he did it in a backwater place called Bethlehem. In a stable to poor people. And also that he did it in such a way that there were lots and lots of witnesses. I mean, imagine this, that essentially you're in line at the DMV, except everybody in the county has to go to the DMV. It's such a a rush at the DMV that people have to get a hotel room near the DMV. And all of a sudden, one of the people in line goes into labor. In other words, people would have known that this was happening. People would have known that there was a woman giving birth in the manger. It would have spread. Word of mouth would have spread. Not alone that it was happening, but all the prophecy and the, the words that were spreading around this would have spread that the kingdom comes, that the king comes to a backwater place and to poor people. That's the fact of the incarnation. But now the joy of the incarnation. If there's one word that dominates the birth narrative of Jesus, it's joy. But just like God's kingdom itself, that joy comes to us in a bit of an upside down way it's actually vital to understand this. We've got to understand that the joy of the Incarnation is an upside-down joy. Notice who the joy is announced to first. It's a group of unnamed shepherds in the middle of the country. Shepherds are not high-class people. Shepherds are, are what one commentator called, quote, a despised class they're seen as dirty they're seen as often thieves hard working rough people and that's who the kingdom is announced to is to the riffraff you see the good news is proclaimed first and foremost to the riffraff is that you this christmas season Listen, the message of this is not that the good news is even proclaimed to the riffraff. It's that it is only proclaimed to the riffraff. Because that's who everyone is. Bob Dylan sang the song in the, I think, 70s. No use jiving, no use joking. Everything is broken. And in these shepherds, we need to see ourselves because we're all as broken as they are. We have every reason to be seen like them as immoral and dirty. And Jesus the King comes into this world and says, Everything is broken. Kings and shepherds and everyone in between. And my kingdom is good news for all of them. So there's these shepherds in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden an angel appears... And there's a blinding light as the glory of God shines around them. And what's their reaction? Yay, an angel! No, it says they're terrified. They're filled with great fear. Why? Why are they filled with great fear? Are we we surprised that they are? We shouldn't be because everywhere in Scripture, when the angel of the Lord shows up, it's bad news. Bad business is about to go down when the angel of the Lord shows up. When the glory of the Lord shows up, it means that the justice and the power and the wrath of Yahweh is coming. It's it's what Moses encountered at the burning bush, the holy ground. It's what the Israelites quivered in fear at at the foot of Mount Sinai. Do you remember when they came to the foot of Mount Sinai and there was a a smoke and cloud and darkness and storm and a loud voice and they begged to not hear the voice of Yahweh? Think of Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah's prophecy encountering the glory of the Lord in the throne room of heaven and crying out, woe to me. Or think in the book of Revelation when... The Apostle John sees Jesus' risen glory. And he says, I fell at his feet as though dead. You see, the presence of God means divine justice is here. And if we don't see that as a cause for fear, we just just need to frisk our souls and remember Jesus' summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, mind, soul, perfectly. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, nothing less than continual, constant, perfect, whole soul devotion in thought, word, and deed from cradle to grave. That's all God requires of you. And if that doesn't fill you with fear at the thought of meeting justice after not having met that standard, then we're not paying attention. Look, that's God's standard And it's very easy for us to think that the evil that God is coming to cleanse the world of is out there. That it's it's those people, it's those things, it's those uh, societies. But what the shepherds know, and what we ought to know, is that it's us. It's in my heart. That I have cause to be filled with great fear. But what does the angel say? Fear not. Look, it's really easy to be filled with fear in the holidays. And that fear might mask itself as busyness, or lots and lots of planning, or trying to get your Christmas list checked off just the right way, or trying to get the ornaments perfectly unpacked, or not being quite sure Who's coming when? It's easy to be filled with great fear. Listen to the angel of the Lord. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. You see, the joy of the incarnation, friends, is that it speaks to you in exactly the place where you're terrified. It's that the joy meets these shepherds in exactly the place where they are quivering in fear because of the blinding light of God's holiness. You see, if God isn't with us, if God isn't for us, then God coming to us is terrorizing. But if He's coming to us as He says, unto you is born a Savior, then all of a sudden, The justice of God, the righteous power of God is good news. Because it means that that's the righteousness He's going to put on you. That's the power that He's going to put to work for you. It's the ultimate happy ending. That's what is inaugurated in Jesus' incarnation is the ultimate cosmic happy ending. That the moment, and you know this moment in every blockbuster movie you've ever seen, in every every Pixar movie, when it's the moment of ultimate tension, where all of a sudden something happens and it all gets resolved. Think of every last twenty minutes of every amazing movie you've ever seen. This is what J.R. Tolkien says about that. He says the Gospels, this is from his lecture called On Fairy Stories, where he argues that fairy tales uh, speak to us basically because the Gospel is written on our hearts. He says the Gospels contain a fairy story, but this story has entered history and the primary world The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe, the the good catastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe, the good catastrophe of the incarnation. The story begins and ends in joy. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. This story is supreme and it is true. Art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. The gospel has not abrogated legends. It has hallowed them, especially the happy ending. You see, this is why movies with big blockbuster happy endings speak to us. It's not because you're sentimental. It's not because it They've figured out a method. It's because the happy ending is written on your heart. That's why we sing glory to God in the highest. Because he has brought peace. God has brought peace. Jesus tells us, blessed are the peacemakers. Why? For they shall be called sons of God. Because their heavenly father is the original peacemaker. That's what the incarnation announces. Is that even though you and I, in our flesh, in Adam, are guilty of cosmic treason against the Almighty, that he has made peace. All right, so what? You know, some some of us particularly at the holidays, but year-round maybe, experience darkness and suffering that makes it really easy to write off the Christmas story. To say, yeah, that's nice, but you know what? The world's not wrapped up with a red bow. You can't wrap all of the suffering in the world and in my life in wrapping paper and tell me to sing hallelujah. But that's why the Incarnation is beautiful, is because it doesn't shy away from the darkness that it comes in the midst of. The Gospels and the Scripture entirely does not shy away from the violence, from the injustice, from the evil that permeates the human condition. It doesn't shy away from suffering in the world. The gospel meets these shepherds in the darkness and fear they experience and proclaims good news of great joy there. But could it be this Christmas season that the Holy Spirit, through His Word, is, is not telling you to wrap the world in, a, in, in wrapping paper and put a bow on it and pretend like everything's hunky-dory? but rather to look back to Jesus' first coming and to long for His second coming. That He came once humbly. He will come again in power. And maybe that can meet you in the midst of your depression, in the midst of your sadness, in the midst of a bad report from the doctor, in the midst of crippling fear about what next year will bring. Second, notice how the shepherds respond. Verse 15, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. If they were from South Mississippi, they'd say, y'all, let's go to Bethlehem. Look, there's a subtle bit of truth in that that is very important for us to get, especially at a time of year when everything else is competing for your attention. If this is true, then it demands to be the primary voice in your life. If this is true, if God has become man, if the king has come in Bethlehem, then we have to go. Then my life now has to be oriented in total submission to this story and to this king. There can be no allegiance that is above it or competing with it. Y'all, let's go to Bethlehem. Then notice, thirdly, that the glory in this passage is given exclusively to God. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. It's just a gentle, subtle reminder that Christmas like the kingdom of God itself is primarily about what God has accomplished. It's not about us. Not first at least. It's not about what you are doing, it's about what God has done. It's about what God is accomplishing in the incarnation. And if if we wonder what that is, look at verse 19. Very kind of cryptic verse. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. You almost get the, the image of everyone rejoicing and uh, singing and laughing. And Mary just having a little bit of a conflicted look on her face. Not being quite sure what this all means. Friends, I think, and I don't think I'm reading too much into the passage, I think Mary's putting the pieces together. I think Mary sees what's coming maybe a little more clearly than anyone else. A few days after this, when they bring Jesus to the temple, Simeon is going to tell her that this child has been appointed for the rising and falling of many, and he's going to tell Mary, "...a sword will pierce your heart." What would you do with that? You see, already at Christmas, and I think Mary is on to this, already at Christmas, we're being prepared for Calvary. There's a thin but clear line that goes straight from Christmas to the cross. Jesus is going to proclaim freedom to the captives. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. He's going to proclaim uh, liberty and the day of the Lord's favor precisely because He's going to lose the Lord's favor for us. He's going to be separated from the love of His Father so that we can have the love of His Father. He's coming to save the world through bearing the world's sin. It's uh, possible historians tell us that the reason these shepherds are in the field at night is that it is lambing season when this passage takes place, which is when the mother ewes are giving birth, and for mother ewes who were giving birth to their firstborn, if it was a spotless lamb, these shepherds who likely uh, served the temple, who likely supplied the sacrificial lambs. If a mother ewe gave birth to a spotless firstborn lamb, they would have wrapped it in cloth and taken it to the priest to be sacrificed. Do you see already at Christmas that Jesus, wrapped in cloth, spotless, innocent, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Is being prepared for Calvary, where he will be the all sufficient sacrifice, not sacrificed by by an earthly high priest, because he himself is our priest who offers himself on our behalf. Don't lose sight of that in the midst of Mariah Carey and Charlie Brown. This winter, I want you to enjoy those things. I'm not beating up on those things. That's fine. But don't miss the joy and the truth of the incarnation in the midst of the celebration. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we must confess that so often... we are surprised by the way that you do things. And so often that reveals that we really don't know you. And that our hearts have not been conformed to your heart as they ought to be. If we're surprised that you come to the humble places, that you announce the kingdom to the riffraff, that you come to the stable, not the palace, uh, to shepherds, not kings or priests. Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, mold us in your own image. I pray that we would remember, in the midst of all the glitz and glamour of the holiday season, uh, that our hearts would not be coated in tinsel, That we would remember that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Lord Jesus, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, would you magnify your own glory in our hearts and in our midst. We pray in your name, O Christ. Amen.